This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hope everybody's having a great Wednesday morning. I had to think what day it was there. That tells you how my week is going so far. Uh, don't even know what day it is. Maybe I need a, 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 a mental mini, mini mental status exam. But I uh, hope your day is going well. Sort of a crisp morning with those lower temperatures at night, warming up during the day. One of my favorite things about December in the South, but uh, certainly lots of health effects that could go along with that. This is Southern Remedy, and on Wednesday we give you a chance to really drive what we're going to talk about. So uh, we would love for you to call in right now with any type of medical question that you might have, or you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. From time to time, I get questions from my patients in clinic, and they one of the things that they usually bring up this time of year is, what are the effects of cold on our health? And a great question, and the body has an, a great ability to adapt to so many different um, environments, whether they be hot or cold or rainy or or dry. And uh, there's lots of different systems in the body that help to regulate that uh, so that it can have, uh, you know, as far as the body's concerned, it would like for everything, at least internal, to be nice and uh, constant and doesn't change a whole lot. There are some exceptions to that, of course, like when you get an infection, uh, maybe a viral infection, and your body raises the temperature to help uh, decrease the effects of the virus. That's a normal response that is very healthy to generate a fever in that kind of way. But what happens when you get outside in the cold and you haven't been used to that? You know, there are adaptations for heat that do take time, and that has to do with the body's, mainly the body, the body's ability to cool itself and also to regulate the amount of free water and electrolytes in your body. And you, it takes up to about two weeks to sort of acclimatize to those effects. <clears throat> but as far as uh, the cooling effects, particularly as it gets cold, uh, the body really has some instantaneous things. So it doesn't really adapt over that. Now, you can adapt to how you view it and uh, and how you tolerate it. But um, one of the things that can happen, particularly in some people, is the normal way that the body vasoconstricts, that's just at those blood vessels in the skin, uh, will vasoconstrict. They'll clamp down and shunt blood towards the organs that need it more. This is one of the reasons why in colder weather, why your hands get cold or your feet get cold. And different people have different measures of those responses. and But they are, again, for a very good purpose to help shunt that blood to organs like your heart uh, and muscles and your brain uh, so that they don't cool off. Once they start cooling off, then you can have some, some uh, bad effects. 
But as you do that, that can cause a lot of different uh, responses in the body. Now, if you are a person that has an exaggerated stress response to uh, or response to to the cold with excessive vasoconstriction, you can have what's called Raynaud's phenomenon. That's R A. Uh, Y-N-A-U-D, so a French name. Uh, And basically what happens is you get really painful, usually in the hands or the feet in cold weather, really painful digits in, in your extremities. And initially, they can be white, okay? So they're sort of patriotic is what I call them, but uh, not in the good way. So they're white to begin with, and that's because of those blood vessels that have clamped down, and again, in an exaggerated fashion. It's a normal response, but it's just gone too far, and it restricts blood flow in those areas. Any tissue in the body, if you restrict blood flow to it for an extended period of time, you start to get pain in those areas. And that's what people with Raynaud's will tell you that they have is pain in those areas that have become white. If it goes on long enough, they can become blue. And that's just from deoxygenation in the tissues and um, and the, from the decreased blood flow. And then finally, when it reverses itself, and usually the best way to do this is just to warm up those tissues. So uh, maybe putting them inside your coat or wearing some gloves or going inside where it's warmer, gently running, uh, you know, warm, uh, lukewarm water. Don't ever want to put the hot water there because you you may uh, damage the tissue then they get red so they go from white to blue to red uh, in that order and uh, and sometimes even in the warming up process they can have a lot of pain now Raynaud's is a um, both a diagnosis and a symptom so some people have Raynaud's and don't have any other problems uh, that are identifiable but it can be associated with certain autoimmune diseases. So you can have mixed connective tissue disease, for instance, and have Raynaud's, or you might have Raynaud's in conjunction in conjunction with rheumatoid arthritis. So it is, uh, you know, something that does need to be, anytime I have a patient with Raynaud's, I'll think about maybe if, if we need to, to uh, uh, be a detective a little bit more in more detail and ask some more questions about what else is going on, maybe even check some uh, autoimmune laboratory results just to see if, if they're indicative of something else. But that's one of those things that all of us experience to some degree when we go outside. My hands are still a little cold from uh, from walking outside today to my car and then driving over here and then getting out again. And it takes time for those to warm up. But that's the reason why it happens. But if it's exaggerated, you may want to get somebody to take a look at it uh, we don't have to see it to make the diagnosis, and there's not really a lab test for Raynaud's in and of itself. It's more of the description of it. It is helpful if you can, you know, look at it. It's very descriptive and uh, uh, very characteristic. And um, really, uh, the line between white and normal color of your hands uh, is pretty dramatic when you look at it. So, um, but that's something that can happen in colder weather. You can develop that at any time of your life, so you don't have to be born with it. It's something that can uh, change uh, over time. 
Speaking of catching programs that you may not have heard the whole entirety of it, you can uh, listen to Southern Remedy. All of our Southern Remedy programs are available on podcasts, so you can go to your favorite podcasting app, search for Southern Remedy, and uh, download that. And you can listen to the entirety of it. Maybe you've got a different time that you want to do that. Maybe over the weekend, you certainly can do that by downloading the app. You know, other things that can uh, be associated with colder weather, um, a lot of people are concerned about, you know, shivering is another response that's a physiologic response. If you've been out to, say, a football game or you're not quite bundled up like you should, or maybe you're standing in line outside for something, then a shivering response is the way the body uses muscles to generate uh, more heat. So as those muscles are shivering, just those small contractions back and forth, that generates heat that can warm up your body. And physical activity can do that. You have to be careful and think about the losses, the heat losses that we have from our skin. Uh, And the easiest way to prevent that is to bundle up. Layers do help uh, because it creates pockets of air that can warm up and sort of have an insulation type quality to it. I know a lot of people are saying, well, if I just have one big thick thing on, that's going to be okay. And that might be all right, but uh, you might need layers of clothing uh, that that, uh, that's always helpful in the South because it can get 70 degrees and then go down to 30. You never know what kind of weather you're going to have. Sweating is also common, even during cold weather. So as you have activity, uh, again, your body's trying to keep everything uh, at the same temperature. Uh, when you do that, you know, those layers of clothing can come off. Uh, if you have younger kids that are involved in sports activities or you yourself are going to the gym, keep that in mind too. You don't want to, you really want to hit the sweet spot. So you don't want to be out there and sweating so profusely that uh, I know some people, uh, I had a good friend of mine that lived in Alaska and anytime he would do a heavy activity when it was really cold in the winter uh, up in Fairbanks, uh, he would complain that his you know, the sweat on his skin would freeze. And uh, to me, that's that's just too cold to be outside right there. But he would he would call me and say, hey, man, my eyelashes froze up together. And I was like, you probably don't need to be outside in that. So don't have that problem, generally speaking, in Mississippi that I'm aware of, at least. But you still need to I think we still need to uh, have some precautions there uh, in particular because we don't have a lot of cold weather. I'm going to go to Preston from Grenada. Good morning, Preston. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Merry Christmas. Uh, um, I think I have what's called tremors, uh, but regardless of what you call it, I can't sign my name because my hand shakes so bad, and I was mm-hmm. just wondering if there's something I can do about that. Yeah, there are many causes of tremors. Some of those are what we call, you know, we say they're benign, but they can cause significant uh, and a significant negative impact to just everyday activities. Um, You really have to get a good diagnosis on those because there are some that are associated with other neurologic um, diseases. One of the most common that people are aware of is Parkinson's disease. And uh, Mm -hmm. Parkinson tremors are pretty uh, distinct. And they're oftentimes associated with certain other things, like maybe some changes in the way that you walk. Uh, Maybe it's certain times of the day that you uh, would have these tremors, or maybe there's some slowness of some activities. And really, we rely on a physical exam for and history for most of these diagnoses, and it may 
be a little bit more than your usual physical exam that you get when you go to the doctor. So it may involve walking down the hallway and having the doctor look at the at your walk and your gait. Uh, it may be doing some physical exam uh, maneuvers in the office, like how uh, strong you are in your upper extremities and your arms and uh, doing repetitive motions with your hands. So once you've been through all that without going into too much detail, you know, you can have what's called a benign tremor, uh, which sometimes runs in families. It can get worse with age and is usually associated with more fine motor functions, which you just described as one of the best ones is, you know, writing your name or, or handwriting. There are some medications to treat this if that's what it is. Uh, some of those are blood pressure medications like beta blockers. It helps sort of smooth out muscle contraction um, because it's really a disinhibition of the muscles in your extremities by your brain over time. Now, if it is something like Parkinson's, though, and I'm just that's one of the more common ones. There's certainly others that can cause tremors or there may be actually some. Uh, you can have uh, a uh, disc in your neck that's uh, pressing on the nerves to your hand that could be causing that. Again, need to sort of have somebody tease all that out. Uh, the treatment for it, though, if it's in particular for Parkinson's, is going to be a little bit different um, and involve different medications. But the diagnosis is sort of key first. If they say, hey, th- we think this is a benign tremor, um, then I would uh, you know, ask them about certain medications that could be uh, prescribed that might help that. Now, there, you may have some contraindications for those and may not like you know, some of the side effects, but I would give it a try because it can be pretty debilitating. I had a patient of mine that came to me. She was a pretty prolific um, needlepoint uh, is what she loved to do, and she got to the point where she couldn't do that and uh, came in and Almost as an aside, I was seeing her for a couple of other things. She already had hypertension, high blood pressure, and we were able to change her blood pressure regimen around a little bit to treat some of that those tremors. And in her case, it was a benign familial tremor uh, that she had, but it was impacting what she could do. And she was able to get back to her needle point um, and uh, do some of the things that, that were important to her. So you might want to check that out. If you hadn't got a firm diagnosis, I'd get that first. But if it is a benign tremor, uh, then intention tremor, then so is another term that it's, it's sometimes called. Then I would, uh, I might, uh, you know, ask them about certain medications to see if you can get some improvement. Thank you very much. All right, Preston. Merry Christmas back to you, and uh, we appreciate you listening and calling. Let's go to Gloria from Jackson. Good morning, sir. Uh, I have a question for you. There was an extensive interview on Meet the Press this Sunday with uh, uh, an Olympian by the name of Allison Felix. She uh, had very difficult pregnancy with preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, our own Olympian from here in Mississippi, Cory Booker, lost her life. Uh, in delivery with the same issues. I was wondering if you could tell us how we could, why why we have such a high incidence of that here in, in Mississippi and what we can do to maybe lessen the occurrence of this deadly situation for uh, for mothers and their babies. 
Yeah, that is a great thing to talk about, Gloria, because it does impact so many people in the state. So when we say infant mortality, that's a, a number that is a percentage of of a thousand infants born. So for every a thousand infants that are born, how many of them would will die? Um and uh, it's it's a big number. So, um, you know, state by state, we have these numbers that are reported. But Mississippi's infant mortality is about twice as much as what the national average is. Uh, so it's almost twice as much of that. So, um, you know, if we look back to uh, previous years, this has sort of risen over time. And there's multiple reasons for this. One of the, the biggest things that we can do to help prevent this is get regular prenatal care. And that just means that as soon as you find out you're pregnant, and even before that, because there may be some things that you can do to limit exposures to developing babies um, while they're developing it, and you know uh, that the mother can do to help prevent some of those things like smoking or maybe some of the medications that you're taking or just overall health. Because we have such a high incidence of obesity, of diabetes, of high blood pressure, those all can increase that rate and uh, can impact the growth of a baby as they're developing uh, before they're born and contribute, unfortunately, to that, to that infant mortality. So all of those things, you may think, hey, I'm young. Um, you know, I know I have high blood pressure, but I'm just going to just move forward with it. And, you know, I don't really want to want to address it. Um, it can impact not only your life, but your future baby's life. So it's important to address all of those comorbidities is what we call them, other medical conditions that you might have. Um, and it's, you know, we think we can wait. We usually think this a lot about a lot of things like, well, we'll just wait. And when I know I have it. I'll address it. But really, it, but because of the development of a baby and how it works and the timing of it, you, you may be six or even you know, six weeks into uh, being pregnant and not know it or longer. And that's six weeks that have an enormous amount of very important stages in the development of that baby that may be impacted by negative health um, um, issues that you might have. So that's the reason for, you know, doing that and really paying attention to it and being aggressive with the treatment of those things or prevention of those things. So if we did that, then we would have a huge impact in that infant mortality rate. The other thing is making sure that we, again, once you know you're pregnant, uh, setting up a time to go to uh, a physician who is going to follow you for that over time and really look at all of those different things that might be impacting the pregnancy um, and then making sure if it is a high risk pregnancy that uh, an obstetrical uh, physician would be following you for that and maybe even bring in some other specialists to help during the delivery uh, and to make sure the timing of the delivery is correct and all the resources that you would need uh, for that for that uh, for that birth would be there. So. Uh, again, that's those are great things to bring up, Gloria. Very pertinent, and uh, certainly this is one that sort of hits near and dear to me uh, for for our patients of the state that we could make a big impact. One last thing, uh, Miss Allison Felix on this interview mentioned the fact that she had been taking care of her health all of her life. 
she's four or five times gold medalist. And the question that puzzles her so is, I have means, financial means, I have excellent health, and still I have been uh, actually, uh, you know, hurtled by this, 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 this eclampsia. Is there, is there something maybe beyond the approach that you just outlined? Is there something maybe beyond that that we need to be aware of that uh, maybe all of us might not know about? Is there? Do you have any ideas of that? Yeah, the most common, if we're talking about eclampsia or preeclampsia, the most common uh, thing that can uh, affect that is high blood pressure. Um, so that's the, the biggest, um, you know, if you control high blood pressure, you do before you get pregnant, while you're pregnant, um, that can decrease that incidence of it. But there is a lot about eclampsia that we're, we're learning and uh, it can, you know, you can have a, a predilection in families. So there's some genetic component that we don't fully understand. There may be some environmental factors that people are exposed to that may make them more likely to get that. And then diet and exercise play a big part. And sometimes too much exercise or, or in, you know, certainly I'm not, I'm not, I think it's, we're really on the other end of that. Like there's not too many people that are getting too much exercise, uh, particularly in Mississippi. Um, but, um, but that you can affect negatively, you know, most, obstetricians now the data would support that we do need to continue exercise but they're a little hesitant at the higher ends of it you know if you're competing we certainly had olympians that have been very successful uh including you know including allison felix which is prolific runner um that um that have done very well and have gotten pregnant during that time that they're training, but you do have to make adjustments. So there are some adjustments in both the intensity and then of the, uh, of the exercise and in your nutrition. Um, and it can not only harm the baby, but it can harm you, uh, during that time too. So I'm not saying certainly we're, we're not at, you know, we know that it's important to continue that through your pregnancy but there may be some – it's another reason for seeing that obstetrical person uh, during that time and getting some good advice on what you can and can't do during that time. But uh, we've got uh, actually one or uh, – we've several researchers at UMMC that have been studying eclampsia and sort of the effects of it and what are some of the causes of eclampsia um, from a research standpoint to better understand it, to do some things. But – Far and above, uh, hypertension and not just getting a little bit of treatment, but treatment to goal blood pressure is extremely important in trying to prevent that. Thank you, Doctor. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. I had some great questions and points uh, so far, but we've got plenty of time in the hour left for you to call in. I'm going to go to Gene all the way up in Memphis. Good morning, Gene. Hey, good morning. Thank you, Doctor, for answering my call. Sure. Um, I've got a um, couple of questions, at least. Uh, one is uh, concerning my left hip that seems to have a sharp pain when I'm leaning a certain way, or it seems like it wants to pinch a, l- a little bubble or something. Is it? Uh, is it on one? I, I don't know if it's pinching. It's on like the left side. Okay. 
And and can you is it localized? Does it always occur in the same place? Like is it um, up front same or on place. the? And it seems like it, it's like toward the back, like it's squeezing, pinching an apple or something, and it's like uh, uh, okay, it's like something bruised in there. But it's a. I've been having it for a while, and I don't know what really caused it. Gotcha. And right. and you said on the back side, like back on your bo- back towards your bottom, right? Like you know, like my back, like my where my kidney would be, or something like. That. Oh, okay, okay. Or like at the top of the hip, not in, not in the not in the glutes at, at all, but kind of at the upper gotcha. part, where like a hip pad on a football player would would fit, like in. Uh, Somewhere kind of in, like in the back under the rib or somewhere in there. Right. And uh, and you didn't have any I kind of what, injury what, or anything, Gene, did you? Did you fall or have anything like that happen to you? I don't remember. Uh, I mean, I bumped things here and there, but uh, I don't recall. Now, I fell uh, a time or two within the last several years but i don't remember yeah. injuring my hip that way right uh-huh. and where you're describing that um and i know that we have we have different names for different you know general areas um but is you know when i would when i'm trying to localize that it sounds to me like it's not the hip it's above the hip uh in the back because the hip yeah. the hip's usually a little bit further down and true hip pain most of the time is going to be actually in your groin region. Uh, a lot of people have bursitis and they have all kinds of tendonitis problems, and sometimes that can be on the side of your hip. But it sounds to me like you're describing something that is a little bit on. It's, it's certainly on the back side, and it's a little bit higher up. And there, are, I think this is probably going to be a a muscular or tendinous problem. Um, I'd have to put you through a couple of different motions to sort of try to recreate it to try to pinpoint where it is. But you've got a lot of different muscles in the back that attach to your pelvis, um, and uh, they help you know with movement and mobility. Um, the reason I was asking about an injury, obviously, if there's you know if there's a misalignment of a vertebrae or there's a slip disc or maybe even a fracture, an old fracture. Oh yes, have. I did have. I did have some slip discs back then. Right. I mean, I've hurt my back like three or four times. Gotcha. And I think uh, when I did an ultrasound earlier in the year or so, they said there were some arthritic changes, which I, I'm not sure what arthritic changes meant. But uh, I guess the shape and the curvature of the all the bones back right. there, I suppose, what they meant. Uh and, uh, but it only, you know, it's only when I hit those certain spots and it feels yep. like a little grapefruit or something like it's trying to squeeze some muscle or something. And, and it, and it's like, okay, okay, you're off of me now. So right. you're, you're okay. And, and it, and it, it like hurts for a while and then, but then don't, don't touch me too soon or right. I'll, I'll hit you again <laughs> yeah no so, uh, I, I think i think by what you're describing it sounds to me like this is a, a more like i said before a muscular um, muscular problem and when muscles go into spasm that's what it feels like it feels like you know it's contracting back there it's getting tight and you find those sharp you know little pains it does hurt to press it it hurts with certain movements that be- leads me to believe even more this might be muscular which can be very treatable 
the way I usually like to approach it is, uh, you know, if you can take things like ibuprofen, that's fine to take for a couple of days. Um, you know, if you, I'm sorry. Acetaminophen would be good. is good for something that's muscular related. I sort of like to lean towards things like Advil and Motrin or ibuprofen. Um, uh, just because they tend to, in my experience, they tend to work a little bit better. Now you may have a good reason why you can't take that and that's fine. And you could take the acetaminophen, which is Tylenol. Um, the other thing that I often prescribe is a, uh, a a short course of a muscle relaxer, particularly, you know, at night seems to help a good bit. <clears throat> now, I'm very careful with those. I like to use things, you know, there's one out there called uh, methocarbamol, which is Robaxin, which is the least sedating. Um, but um, a, a short course of that will oftentimes relax that muscle enough to where you're not having those episodes where during that one motion you're getting that. But you're going to need a, a physician to look at you to 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 you know to prescribe both of those things, and then if it persists after about a week, I move up to physical therapy because it, it's really beneficial to do that. Uh, and what they do is they, depending on where it is, they do some strengthening and stretching exercises that can help take uh, the tension off that muscle and uh, distribute it on around other places. Um, now, if you had, if you had said you know you had fallen recently or something like that, I would do X rays. But I don't know that they're going to be that beneficial, you know, based on what you just said. Certainly, blood tests wouldn't be beneficial. Um, arthritic changes are common as we get older. Sometimes those are little bone spurs on the vertebrae. Uh, sometimes it's just thickening of the vertebrae in different places, and uh, those compress on muscles and nerves. Typically in the lower back and pelvis, you wouldn't just jump to surgery on that. That'd be the last thing that I would do. But I think a little bit of that of that ibuprofen, that Advil, Motrin, uh, for the pain, it can also help relax those muscles a little bit. Maybe a muscle relaxer to throw on that. If it's not getting better in a week, then I would, um, you know, maybe consider going to physical therapy. Uh, but a physician is going to have to do that, you know, or a nurse practitioner that can see you and, and uh, sort of recommend that. Well, I like your idea of, of uh, uh, moving moving around those or bones for a sort of thing. And I think I, I'm, I have a physically somewhat active job, but it's mm-hmm. not, you know, triathlon or anything. But uh, it's it's uh, some several movements, but I... I think the the movements on my own. If I could just develop some exercises, I think I could. Uh, yeah. Okay. And Another thing I, I uh-huh. want. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I want I want to ask about uh, uh, is mis, misaligned jaw may have an effect on your hearing because it seems like I I have a harder time clearing my ears and uh, for for audio performance and uh just uh it seems like i have a harder time understanding words that uh are some frequencies of words but i know tv volumes can be different and right yeah uh, speaking all different pitches and different pronunciations and everything but there's some i think uh, uh my ear canal has been compromised some kind of way because i know my jaw 
you know, I bite my lip a little bit too much sometimes or my tongue. And uh, I, I think, if, is there any way to realign the jaw and open or make the ear canal a little bit better? And I'm also having trouble swallowing sometimes. And I don't know, you know, maybe that's my blood pressure medication or something like that. So can you comment on those? Yeah, yeah. So the jaw itself shouldn't be connected to the ear canal like that. Now, what you may be experiencing, and I think you sort of mentioned this, you know, if you if you blow your nose too hard sometimes, you'll, you know, it'll feel like you're stopping up your ear. Oh, yeah. Or if you, uh, if you yawn, you know, it may unstop it from time to time. That's actually the eustachian tube, which is a little little tunnel, little canal that connects the inner ear right. where those those apparatus for hearing is and the back of your throat. So it, the air pressure on each side. Exactly. Of the throat, right? Exactly. And that may be what you're what you're experiencing more than the the jaw itself is pretty distant to the ear canal and it doesn't um, now some of the okay. same things that are going on may may be affecting that eustachian tube. But usually that's just an equalization thing. But that can that can affect your hearing pretty much. I will say if you're having trouble swallowing, particularly if it's progressive over time, get that checked out because that can be that can be other things that are happening. Okay. Well, I thank you, Doctor, so much. Uh, it's been extremely helpful. All right, Gene. Thank you for calling and listening, and uh, we do wish you well. We're going to go to William from Hattiesburg. Good morning, William. Good morning. Uh Doctor, I have cramps in my feet, my calves, and my up and my thighs every morning, and I noticed it since uh, Thanksgiving. It started doing it every day. It was kind of intermittent before Thanksgiving, but now it's every morning. I go to sleep about uh, eleven, eleven thirty every night. And I used used to sleep about seven or seven thirty, but now these cramps wake me up. Uh, between 5.30 and 6 o'clock. And like I said, that's every morning. Yeah, and uh, the sleep part of it is very interesting to me because it might point us in the right direction. So um, do you? So did you say or have you woken up and you're sort of like out of breath when you sleep or if you've had sort of sleep fragmentation where you wake up and can't get back to sleep? Uh, no, sir. I okay. sleep well, and I was sleeping well before these cramps started to plague me. Gotcha. So, so cramps can be caused by a number of things. I think a lot of people jump to the you know some of the more common things, which is uh, uh, like electrolyte disturbances, particularly if your potassium gets too low or magnesium gets too low. Sometimes you can experience cramps, particularly when you overexert yourself with physical activity. Uh, that is a simple thing to check and to see if those levels are normal. Uh, a lot of people will eat things like bananas, which uh, it takes a keep in mind if you're doing that uh, or citrus fruits for that matter are pretty high in potassium. Number one, it sort of helps to know what that potassium number is that in your system, and if your levels are okay, you don't you don't need to really do that. But if they are low then you could always increase the amount of potassium-rich foods in your diet, which tend to be those citrus fruits and bananas and things like that. There are a lot of vegetables that have uh, high potassium as well. Um, but you need to eat it consistently. And uh, But if it's not that, and particularly if it's affecting your – if you've had changes in your sleep because of it, a lot of sleep disorders will present themselves – 
just with muscle cramps. So I always take a good sleep history, and if there's other people that are sleeping in the same room or bed with you, sometimes that can be helpful, too, to sort of zoom in on, do you have restless leg movements at night? Does it feel like you just can't get situated in the bed? Because sometimes treating those disorders can uh, alleviate a lot of the cramps that you're having throughout the rest of the day uh, and get you better sleep. But there's something about, and I've never seen any kind of direct evidence of why you know this happens, where you can have these cramps that go along with some of the parasomnia, some of the sleep sleep related disorders. But it is a, a, a fairly you know uh, known association with those. And then there's some other things too. There's some uh, there are some muscle related diagnoses that require a little bit of testing and. Sometimes even, you know, a little bit of a a small biopsy to the muscle to help uh, differentiate that. But I'd start with the simple things first and uh, just telling your physician, hey, uh, this is affecting my sleep. I heard that this might be related to some sleep disorders. There's some uh, plenty of sleep specialists around that can, you know, address that and maybe even do a sleep study to try to tease out. Is this what the cause is? But they're probably going to do those blood tests first. Uh, because again, that's a pretty easy fix if your potassium is low. Uh, do do need to figure out, you know, if that's the cause of, of why it's low in the first place. But that's that's where I would start. Um, I know a lot of people like to just go ahead and jump in with, you know, with taking supplements and that kind of thing. But really, you should know if it is low. Um, you know, then that would support that. If it's not, then you move on to the next thing. Okay, doctor. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. And thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. If you're not able to call in today, you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Floyd from Macon. Good morning, Floyd. Good morning. How you doing, Dr. Jimmy? Good. I've got a question. My daughter has a condition called ovarian remnant syndrome. It's where she has her ovaries removed, but the remnant of them still grows and produces hormones, and it's creating abscess where she gets real sick and she has to go to the hospital maybe three or four times a year. Sometimes she's hospitalized, and they have to drain those abscess every so often. But what we're trying to find is, is what's, the, what's the complete fix for that? Is there something like a surgery or something she could do right yeah yeah and i this is an area that i'm not as familiar with as other things but my um you know sometimes surgery is the sort of the finality of that um and now a lot of them you know there is a surgical techniques and then there's the pharmacological techniques so pharmacologic that means that we try different medications uh different ways to sort of treat that um, there are some hormonal treatments that can be used to do that um, in, in for some patients, uh, but it's uh, it's pretty small numbers. I think that they've been tried, uh, but having somebody that's dealt with it before and an, obstet- an obstetrical gynecologist that's dealt with this before um, and um, and can take care of ultimately surgery. The problem is if you have an abscess is you typically don't want to go in the abdomen, in the abdominal cavity, and, you know, do any type of surgery if you have an abscess. Because what an abscess is, is it's bacteria that are setting up shop there, 
and uh, it's walled off. Usually it's like a cavity, but it's still, if you cut into that cavity or it bursts, sometimes it's under pressure anyway. So when you go to take it out surgically, um, it can burst, and then you've got bacteria that are all in the abdomen. And that can cause the patient to become sicker. It's a little bit harder to treat at that point. You have to wash out the entire abdomen. So treating it with antibiotics, and uh, the other thing about antibiotics are they're very hard to get in these abscess cavities because they're under pressure and have poor blood supplies. So that's why getting it drained off uh, can be the thing to do. But if you if you reach a point where it's it's small, you know, usually they'll want to drain it off, maybe treat it with antibiotics, let it get smaller, and then take the whole thing out uh, surgically then I think that would be the that would be the thing to do. Again, everybody's going to be a little bit different, though, particularly if you have an abscess situation. So they're going to have to treat that very carefully. You know, a lot of people would be like, well, why don't we just go in and take it out? But that's the reasons why, because sometimes you can do more damage and spread that infection throughout the entire abdomen when you go in and do it. Um, surgeons typically don't like to operate on things like that unless they absolutely have to. But... It probably would, wouldn't be a bad idea just to get a second opinion from somebody. <clears throat> I don't know that they'll, they'll have that much of a difference of opinion, but that's always a good option, particularly if you feel like, you know, you're just sort of exhausted the, the options that you have. Um, but that, that was, and again, this obstetrics and gynecology are not, that, that's probably the biggest area that I feel the weakest in. But based on what my colleagues have told me and what I've read, this, that would be what I would do. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's exactly what happened. She she had surgery, and two days after, she developed um, about six or seven abscesses after that surgery. After they went in to remove her ovaries. Yep. Um, yeah. And yeah. That, that's that, probably what. Happened. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it because it's and that's a risk with surgery is infection sometimes and. Um, even if you're really careful, sometimes there's just, uh, you know, bacteria that you can just have one bacteria. That's all you need. And they're really tiny. And once they set up shop, it can be sort of hard to treat. Yes, sir. All right. Well, thanks, Doug. Give me I appreciate you taking my call. Thank you, Floyd. And I hope everything works out for your, for your I believe it was your daughter there. Um, that's about all the time we have for today. I want to thank everybody for calling as usual. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.